The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Chapter 5 of The Jungle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 5. They had bought their home. It was hard for them to realize that the wonderful house was theirs to move into whenever they chose. They spent all their time thinking about it and what they were going to put into it. As their week with Anile was up in three days, they lost no time in getting ready. They had to make some shift to furnish it, and every instance of their leisure was given to discussing this. A person who had such a task before him would not need to look very far in Packingtown. He had only to walk up the avenue and read the signs, or get into a streetcar, to obtain full information as to pretty much everything a human creature could need. It was quite touching the zeal of people to see that his health and happiness were provided for. Did the person wish to smoke? There was a little discourse about cigars, showing him exactly why the Thomas Jefferson five-cent perfecto was the only cigar worthy of the name. Had he, on the other hand, smoked too much? Here was a remedy for the smoking habit, twenty-five-cent doses for a quarter, and a cure absolutely guaranteed in ten doses. In innumerable ways such as this the traveller found that somebody had been busy to make smooth his pass through the world, and to let him know what had been done for him. In Packingtown the advertisements had a style all of their own, adapted to the peculiar population. One would be tenderly solicitous. "'Is your wife pale?' it would inquire. "'Is she discouraged?' Does she drag herself about the house and find fault with everything? Why do you not tell her to try Dr. Lanahan's life preservers? Another would be jocular in tone, slapping you on the back, so to speak. Don't be a chump, it would exclaim. Go ahead and get the Goliath Bunyan cure. Get a move on you, would chime in another. It's easy if you wear the Eureka 250 shoe. Among these importunate signs was one that had caught the attention of the family by its pictures. It showed two very pretty little birds building themselves a home, and Maria had asked an acquaintance to read it to her, and told them that it related to the furnishing of the house. Feather your nest, it ran, and went on to say that it could furnish all the necessary feathers for a four-room nest for the ludicrously small sum of seventy-five dollars. The particularly important thing about this offer was that only a small part of the money need be had at once. The rest one might pay a few dollars every month. Our friends had to have some furniture. There was no getting away from that. But their little fund of money had sunk so low that they could hardly get to sleep at night, and so they fled to this as their deliverance. There was more agony and another paper for Elzbeta to sign, and then one night when Jurgis came home, he was told the breathless tidings that the furniture had arrived and was safely stowed in the house, a parlor set of four pieces, 
a bedroom set of three pieces, a dining-room table and four chairs, a toilet set with beautiful pink roses painted all over it, an assortment of crockery also with pink roses, and so on. One of the plates in the set had been found broken when they unpacked it, and Ona was going to the store the first thing in the morning to make them change it. Also they had promised three saucepans, and there had only two come, and did Jurikis think that they were trying to cheat them? The next day they went to the house, and when the men came from work they ate a few hurried mouthfuls at Anilay's and then set to work at the task of carrying their belongings to their new home. The distance was in reality over two miles, but Jurgis made two trips that night, each time with a huge pile of mattresses and bedding on his head, with bundles of clothing and bags and things tied up inside. Anywhere else in Chicago he would have stood a chance of being arrested, but the policemen in Packingtown were apparently used to these informal movings, and contented themselves with a cursory examination now and then. It was quite wonderful to see how fine the house looked, with all the things in it, even by the dim light of a lamp. It was really home, and almost as exciting as the placard had described it. Ona was fairly dancing, and she and cousin Maria took Jurgis by the arm and escorted him from room to room, sitting in each chair by turns, and then insisting that he should do the same. One chair squeaked with his great weight, and they screamed with fright and woke the baby and brought everybody running. Altogether it was a great day, and tired as they were, Jurgis and Ona sat up late, contented simply to hold each other and gaze in rapture about the room. They were going to be married as soon as they could get everything settled, and a little spare money put by, and this was to be their home. That little room yonder would be theirs. It was, in truth, a never-ending delight, the fixing up of this house. They had no money to spend for the pleasure of spending, but there were a few absolutely necessary things, and the buying of these was a perpetual adventure for Ona. It must always be done at night, so that Jurgis could go along, and even if it were only a pepper cruet, or half a dozen glasses for ten cents, that was enough for an expedition. On Saturday night they came along with a great basketful of things, and spread them out on the table while everyone stood round, and the children climbed up on the chairs or howled to be lifted up to see. There were sugar and salt and tea and crackers and a can of lard and a milk pail and a scrubbing brush and a pair of shoes for the second oldest boy and a can of oil and a tack hammer and a pound of nails. These last were to be driven into the walls of the kitchen and the bedrooms to hang things on, and there was a family discussion as to the place where each one was to be driven. Then Jurgis would try to hammer, and hit his fingers because the hammer was too small, and get mad because Ona had refused to let him pay fifteen cents more and get a bigger hammer, and Ona would be invited to try it herself, and hurt her thumb, and cry out which necessitated the thumbs being kissed by Jurgis. Finally, after everyone had had a try, the nails would be driven and something hung up. Jurgis had come home with a big packing-box on his head, and he sent Jonas to get another that he had bought. He meant to take one side out of these tomorrow and put shelves in them and make them into bureaus and places to keep things for the bedrooms. 
the nest which had been advertised had not included feathers for quite so many birds as there were in this family. They had, of course, put their dining-table in the kitchen, and the dining-room was used as the bedroom of Teta Elzbeta and five of her children. She and the two youngest slept in the only bed, and the other three had a mattress on the floor. Ona and her husband dragged a mattress into the parlor and slept at night, and the three men and the oldest boy slept in the other room, having nothing but the very level floor to rest on for the present. Even so, however, they slept soundly. It was necessary for Teta Elzbeta to pound more than once on the floor at a quarter past five every morning. She would have ready a great pot full of steaming black coffee, and oatmeal and bread and smoked sausages, and then she would fix them their dinner-pails with more thick slices of bread with lard between them they could not afford butter, and some onions and a piece of cheese, and so they would tramp away to work. This was the first time in his life that he had ever really worked, it seemed to Jurgis. It was the first time that he had ever had anything to do which took all he had in him. Jurgis had stood with the rest up in the gallery, and watched the men on the killing-beds, marveling at their speed and power as if they had been wonderful machines. It somehow never occurred to him to think of the flesh-and-blood side of it, that is, not until he actually got down into the pit and took off his coat. Then he saw things in a different light. He got at the inside of them. The pace they set here. It was one that called for every faculty of a man, from the instant the first steer fell till the sounding of the noon whistle, and again from half-past twelve till heaven only knew what hour in the late afternoon or evening. There was never one instant's rest for a man, for his hand or his eye or his brain. Jurgis saw how they managed it. There were portions of the work which determined the pace of the rest and for these they had picked men whom they paid high wages, and whom they changed frequently. You might easily pick out these pacemakers, for they worked under the eye of the bosses, and they worked like men possessed. This was called speeding up the gang, and if any man could not keep up the pace there were hundreds outside begging to try. Yet Jurgis did not mind it. He rather enjoyed it. It saved him the necessity of flinging his arms about, and fidgeting as he did in most work. He would laugh to himself as he ran down the line, darting a glance now and then at the man ahead of him. It was not the pleasantest work one could think of, but it was necessary work, and what more had a man the right to ask than a chance to do something useful, and to get good pay for doing it? So Jurgis thought, and so he spoke in his bold free way. Very much to his surprise he found that it had a tendency to get him into trouble, for most of the men here took a fearfully different view of the thing. He was quite dismayed when he first began to find it out that most of the men hated their work. It seemed strange, it was even terrible, when you came to find out the universality of the sentiment, but it was certainly the fact. They hated their work. They hated the bosses, and they hated the owners, they hated the whole place, the whole neighborhood, even the whole city, with an all-inclusive hatred, bitter and fierce. Women and little children would fall to cursing about it. It was rotten, rotten as hell. Everything was rotten. When Jurgis would ask them what they meant, 
they would begin to get suspicious and content themselves with saying, "'Never mind. You stay here and see for yourself.' One of the first problems that Jurgis ran upon was that of the unions. He had had no experience with unions, and he had to have it explained to him that the men were banded together for the purpose of fighting for their rights. Jurgis asked them what they meant by their rights, a question in which he was quite sincere, for he had not any idea of any rights that he had except the right to hunt for a job and do as he was told when he got it. Generally, however, this harmless question would only make his fellow workingmen lose their tempers and call him a fool. There was a delegate of the Butcher Helpers Union who came to see Jurgis to enroll him, and when Jurgis found out that this meant that he would have to part with some of his money, he froze up directly, and the delegate, who was an Irishman and only knew a few words of Lithuanian, lost his temper and began to threaten him. In the end Jurgis got into a fine rage and made it sufficiently plain that it would take more than one Irishman to scare him into a union. Little by little he gathered that the main thing the men wanted was to put a stop to the habit of speeding up. They were trying their best to force a lessening of the pace, for there were some, they said, who could not keep up with it, whom it was killing. But Jurgis had no sympathy with such ideas as this. He could do the work himself, and so could the rest of them, he declared, if they were good for anything. If they couldn't do it, let them go somewhere else. Jurgis had not studied the books, and he would not have known how to pronounce laissez-faire, but he had been round the world enough to know that a man has to shift for himself in it, and that if he gets the worst of it there is nobody to listen to him holler, yet there have been known to be philosophers and plain men who swore by Malthus in the books, and would, nevertheless, subscribe to a relief fund in time of a famine. It was the same with Jurgis who consigned the unfit to destruction, while going about all day sick at heart because of his poor old father, who was wandering somewhere in the yards begging for a chance to earn his bread. Old Antanas had been a worker ever since he was a child. He had run away from home when he was twelve, because his father beat him for trying to learn to read, and he was a faithful man, too. He was a man you might leave alone for a month if only you made him understand what you wanted him to do in the meantime. And now here he was, worn out in soul and body, and with no more place in the world than a sick dog. He had his home, as it happened, and someone who would care for him if he never got a job. But his son could not help thinking, suppose this had not been the case. Antonas Rutkus had been into every building in Packingtown by this time, and into nearly every room. He had stood mornings among the crowd of applicants till the very policeman had come to know his face, and to tell him to go home and give it up. He had been likewise to all the stores and saloons for a mile about, begging for some little thing to do, and everywhere they had ordered him out, sometimes with curses, and not once even stopping to ask him a question. So, after all, there was a crack in the fine structure of Jurgis' faith in things as they are. The crack was wide while Dede Antanas was hunting a job, and it was yet wider when he finally got it. For one evening 
the old man came home in a great state of excitement, with the tale that he had been approached by a man in one of the corridors of the pickle-rooms of Durham's, and asked what he would pay to get a job. He had not known what to make of this at first, but the man had gone off with matter-of-fact frankness to say that he could get him a job, provided that he were willing to pay one-third of his wages for it. Was he a boss? Antanas had asked, to which the man had replied that that was nobody's business, but that he could do what he said. Jurgis had made some friends by this time, and he sought one of them and asked what this meant. The friend, who was named Tomosius Kushlaika, was a sharp little man who folded hides on the killing beds, and he listened to what Jurgis had to say without seeming at all surprised. They were common enough, he said, such cases of petty graft. It was simply some boss who proposed to add a little to his income. After Jurgis had been there a while, he would know that the plants were simply honeycombed with rottenness of that sort. The bosses grafted off the men, and they grafted off each other, and some day the superintendent would find out about the boss, and then he would graft off the boss. Warming to the subject, Tomosius went on to explain the situation. Here was Durham's, for instance, owned by a man who was trying to make as much money out of it as he could, and did not care in the least how he did it. And underneath him, ranged in ranks and grades like an army, were managers and superintendents and foremen, each one driving the man next below him, and trying to squeeze out of him as much work as possible. And all the men of the same rank were pitted against each other. The accounts of each were kept separately, and every man lived in terror of losing his job if another made a better record than he. So from top to bottom the place was simply a seething cauldron of jealousies and hatreds. There was no loyalty or decency anywhere about it. There was no place in it where a man counted for anything against the dollar. And worse than there being no decency, there was not even any honesty. The reason for that, who could say? It must have been old Durham in the beginning. It was a heritage which the self-made merchant had left to his son, along with his millions. Jurgis would find out these things for himself if he stayed there long enough. It was the men who had to do all the dirty jobs, and so there was no deceiving them, and they caught the spirit of the place and did like all the rest. Jurgis had come there and thought he was going to make himself useful and rise and become a skilled man, but he would soon find out his error, for nobody rose in Packingtown by doing good work. You could lay that down for a rule. If you met a man who was rising in Packingtown, you met a knave. That man who had been sent to Jurgis' father by the boss, he would rise. The man who told tales and spied upon his fellows would rise. But the man who minded his own business and did his work, why, they would speed him up till they had worn him out, and then they would throw him into the gutter. Jurgis went home with his head buzzing, yet he could not bring himself to believe such things. No, it could not be so. Tomosius was simply another of the grumblers. He was a man who spent all his time fiddling, and he would go to parties at night and not get home till sunrise, and so, of course, he did not feel like work. Then, too, 
He was a puny little chap, and so he had been left behind in the race, and that was why he was sore. Yet so many strange things kept coming to Jurgis' notice every day. He tried to persuade his father to have nothing to do with the offer, but old Antanas had begged until he was worn out, and all his courage was gone. He wanted a job, any sort of a job, so the next day he went and found the man who had spoken to him, and promised to bring him a third of all he earned, and that same day he was put to work in Durham's cellars. It was a pickle room where there was never a dry spot to stand upon, and so he had to take nearly the whole of his first week's earnings to buy him a pair of heavy-soled boots. He was a squeegee man. His job was to go about all day with a long-handled mop swabbing up the floor. Except that it was damp and dark, it was not an unpleasant job. In summer. Now Antanas Rodkis was the meekest man that God ever put on earth, and so Jurgis found it a striking confirmation of what the men all said that his father had been at work only two days before he came home as bitter as any of them, and cursing Durham's with all the power of his soul, for they had set him to cleaning out the traps, and the family sat round and listened in wonder while he told them what that meant. It seemed that he was working in the room where the men prepared the beef for canning, and the beef had lain in vats full of chemicals, and men with great forks speared it out and dumped it into trucks, to be taken to the cooking-room. When they had speared out all they could reach they emptied the vat on the floor, and then with shovels scraped up the balance and dumped it into the truck. This floor was filthy, yet they set Antonas with his mop slopping the pickle into a hole that connected with a sink where it was caught and used over again forever, and if that were not enough there was a trap in the pipe where all the scraps of meats and odds and ends of refuse were caught, and every few days it was the old man's task to clean these out and shovel their contents into one of the trucks with the rest of the meat. This was the experience of Antonas, and then there came also Jonas and Maria with tales to tell. Maria was working for one of the independent packers, and was quite beside herself and outrageous with triumph over the sums of money she was making as a painter of cans, but one day she walked home with a pale-faced little woman who worked opposite to her, Jadwiga Marcinkus by name, and Jadwiga told her how she, Maria, had chanced to get her job. She had taken the place of an Irish woman who had been working in that factory ever since anyone could remember for over fifteen years, so she declared. Mary Dennis was her name, and a long time ago she had been seduced and had a little boy. He was a cripple and an epileptic, but still he was all that she had in the world to love, and they had lived in a little room alone somewhere back of Halstead Street, where the Irish were. Mary had had consumption, and all day long you might hear her coughing as she worked. Of late, she had been going all to pieces, and when Maria came the forelady had suddenly decided to turn her off. The forelady had to come up to a certain standard herself, and could not stop for sick people, Jadwiga explained. The fact that Mary had been there so long had not made any difference to her. It was doubtful if she even knew that, 
for both the forelady and the superintendent were new people, having only been there two or three years themselves. Jadwiga did not know what had become of the poor creature. She would have gone to see her, but had been sick herself. She had pains in her back all the time, Jadwiga explained, and feared that she had womb trouble. It was not fit work for a woman, handling fourteen-pound cans all day. It was a striking circumstance that Jonas, too, had gotten his job by the misfortune of some other person. Jonas pushed a truck loaded with hams from the smoke-rooms onto an elevator and thence to the packing-rooms. The trucks were all of iron and heavy, and he put about threescore hams on each of them, a load of more than a quarter of a ton. On the uneven floor it was a task for a man to start one of these trucks, unless he was a giant, and when it was once started he naturally tried his best to keep it going. There was always the boss prowling about, and if there was a second's delay he would fall to cursing, Lithuanians and Slovaks and such, who could not understand what was said to them. The bosses were wont to kick about the place like so many dogs. Therefore these trucks went, for the most part, on the run, and the predecessor of Jonas had been jammed against a wall by one and crushed in a horrible and nameless manner. All of these were sinister incidents, but they were trifles compared to what Jurgis saw with his own eyes before long. One curious thing he had noticed the very first day, in his profession of shoveler of guts, which was the sharp trick of the floor-bosses whenever there chanced to come a slunk calf. Any man who knows anything about butchering knows that the flesh of a cow that is about to calve, or has just calved, is not fit for food. A good many of these came every day to the packing-houses, and of course, if they had chosen, it would have been an easy matter for the packers to keep them till they were fit for food. But for the saving of time and fodder it was the law that cows of that sort came along with the others, and whoever noticed it would tell the boss, and the boss would start up a conversation with the government inspector, and the two would stroll away. So in a trice the carcass of the cow would be cleaned out and entrails would have vanished. It was Jurgis' task to slide them into the trap, calves and all, and on the floor below they took out these slunk calves and butchered them for meat, and even used the skins of them. One day a man slipped and hurt his leg, and that afternoon when the last of the cattle had been disposed of and the men were leaving, Jurgis was ordered to remain and do some special work which this injured man had usually done. It was late, almost dark, and the government inspectors had all gone, and there were only a dozen or two of men on the floor. That day they had killed about four thousand cattle, and these cattle had come in freight trains from far states, and some of them had got hurt. There were some with broken legs, and some with gored sides. There were some that had died, from what cause no one could say, and they were all to be disposed of, here in darkness and silence. Downers, the men called them, and the packing-house had a special elevator upon which they were raised to the killing-beds, where the gang proceeded to handle them, with an air of business-like nonchalance which said, plainer than any words, that it was a matter of everyday routine. It took a couple of hours to get them out of the way, and in the end Jurgis saw them go into the chilling-rooms with the rest of the meat, being carefully scattered here and there so that they could not 
be identified. When he came home that night he was in a very somber mood, having begun to see at last how those might be right who had laughed at him for his faith in America. End of chapter 5 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 6 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 6 Jurgis and Ona were very much in love. They had waited a long time. It was now well into the second year, and Jurgis judged everything by the criterion of its helping or hindering their union. All his thoughts were there. He accepted the family because it was a part of Ona, and he was interested in the house because it was to be Ona's home. Even the tricks and cruelties he saw at Durham's had little meaning for him just then, save as they might happen to affect his future with Ona. The marriage would have been at once if they had had their way, but this would mean that they would have to do without any wedding feast, and when they suggested this they came into conflict with the old people. To Teta Elzbeta especially the very suggestion was an affliction what she would cry to be married on the roadside like a parcel of beggars no no elzbeta had some traditions behind her she had been a person of importance in her girlhood had lived on a big estate and had servants and might have married well and been a lady but for the fact that there had been nine daughters and no sons in the family even so however she knew what was decent and clung to her traditions with desperation. They were not going to lose all caste, even if they had come to be unskilled laborers in Packingtown, and that Ona had even talked of omitting a Yeselia was enough to keep her stepmother lying awake all night. It was in vain for them to say that they had so few friends, they were bound to have friends in time, and then the friends would talk about it. They must not give up what was right for a little money. If they did, the money would never do them any good. They could depend upon that. And Elzbeta would call upon Dede Antanas to support her. There was a fear in the souls of these two, lest this journey to a new country might somehow undermine the old-home virtues of their children. The very first Sunday they had all been taken to Mass, and poor as they were, Elzbeta had felt it advisable to invest a little of her resources in a representation of the Babe of Bethlehem, made in plaster, and painted in brilliant colors. Though it was only a foot high, there was a shrine with four snow-white steeples, and the Virgin standing with her child in her arms, and the kings and shepherds and wise men bowing down before him. It had cost fifty cents, but Elzbeta had a feeling that money spent for such things was not to be counted too closely. It would come back in hidden ways. The piece was beautiful on the parlor mantel, and one could not have a home without some sort of ornament. The cost of the wedding feast would, of course, be returned to them, but the problem was to raise it even temporarily. They had been in the neighborhood so short a time that they could not get much credit, and there was no one 
except Shedvilas, from whom they could borrow even a little. Evening after evening Jurgis and Ona would sit and figure the expenses, calculating the term of their separation. They could not possibly manage it decently for less than two hundred dollars, and even though they were welcome to count in the whole of the earnings of Maria and Jonas as a loan, they could not hope to raise this sum in less than four or five months. So Ona began thinking of seeking employment herself, saying that if she had even ordinarily good luck she might be able to take two months off the time. They were just beginning to adjust themselves to this necessity when out of the clear sky there fell a thunderbolt upon them, a calamity that scattered all their hopes to the four winds. About a block away from them there lived another Lithuanian family, consisting of an elderly widow and one grown son. Their name was Majauskis, and our friends struck up an acquaintance with them before long. One evening they came over for a visit, and naturally the first subject upon which the conversation turned was the neighborhood and its history, and then Grandmother Majauskini, as the old lady was called, proceeded to recite to them a string of horrors that fairly froze their blood. She was a wrinkled-up and wizened personage. She must have been eighty, and as she mumbled the grim story through her toothless gums she seemed a very old witch to them. Grandmother Majauskini had lived in the midst of misfortune so long that it had come to be her element, and she talked about starvation, sickness, and death as other people might about weddings and holidays. The thing came gradually. In the first place, as to the house they had bought, it was not new at all, as they had supposed. It was about fifteen years old, and there was nothing new upon it but the paint, which was so bad that it needed to be put on new every year or two. The house was one of a whole row that was built by a company which existed to make money by swindling poor people. The family had paid fifteen hundred dollars for it, and it had not cost the builders five hundred when it was new. Grandmother Majauskini knew that, because her son belonged to a political organization with a contractor who put up exactly such houses. They used the very flimsiest and cheapest material. They built the houses a dozen at a time, and they cared about nothing at all except the outside shine. The family could take her word as to the trouble they would have for she had been through it all. She and her son had bought their house in exactly the same way. They had fooled the company, however, for her son was a skilled man, who made as high as a hundred dollars a month, and as he had had sense enough not to marry, they had been able to pay for the house. Grandmother Majauskini saw that her friends were puzzled at this remark. They did not quite see how paying for the house was fooling the company. Evidently they were very inexperienced. Cheap as the houses were, they were sold with the idea that the people who had bought them would not be able to pay for them. When they failed, if it were only by a single month, they would lose the house and all that they had paid on it, and then the company would sell it over again. And did they often get a chance to do that? Dieve! Grandmother Majauskini raised her hands. They did it. How often no one could say, but certainly more than half the time. They might ask anyone who knew anything at all about Packingtown as to that. 
She had been living here ever since this house was built, and she could tell them all about it. And had it ever been sold before? Suse milke! Why, since it had been built, no less than four families that their informant could name had tried to buy it and failed. She would tell them a little about it. The first family had been Germans. The families had all been of different nationalities. There had been a representative of several races that had displaced each other in the stockyards. Grandmother Majauskini had come to America with her son at a time when, so far as she knew, there was only one other Lithuanian family in the district. The workers had all been Germans then, skilled cattle butchers that the packers had brought from abroad to start the business. Afterward, as cheaper labor had come, these Germans had moved away. The next were the Irish. There had been six or eight years when Packingtown had been a regular Irish city. There were a few colonies of them still here, enough to run all the unions and the police force and get all the graft. But most of those who were working in the packing houses had gone away at the next drop in wages, after the big strike. The Bohemians had come then, and after them the Poles. People said that old man Durham himself was responsible for these immigrations. He had sworn that he would fix the people of Packingtown, so that they would never again call a strike on him, and so he had sent his agents into every city and village in Europe to spread the tale of the chances of work and high wages at the stockyards. The people had come in hordes and old Durham had squeezed them tighter and tighter, speeding them up and grinding them to pieces and sending for new ones. The Poles, who had come by tens of thousands, had been driven to the wall by the Lithuanians, and now the Lithuanians were giving way to the Slovaks, who there was, poorer and more miserable than the Slovaks, Grandmother Majauskini had no idea, but the packers would find them, never fear. It was easy to bring them, for wages were really much higher, and it was only when it was too late that the poor people found out that everything else was higher, too. They were like rats in a trap, that was the truth, and more of them were piling in every day. By and by they would have their revenge, though, for the thing was getting beyond human endurance, and the people would rise and murder the packers. Grandmother Majauskine was a socialist, or some strange thing. Another son of hers was working in the mines of Siberia, and the old lady herself had made speeches in her time, which made her seem all the more terrible to her present auditors. They called her back to the story of the house. The German family had been a good sort. To be sure, there had been a great many of them, which was a common failing in Packingtown, but they had worked hard, and the father had been a steady man, and they had a good deal more than half paid for the house, but he had been killed in an elevator accident in Durham's. Then there had come the Irish, and there had been lots of them, too. The husband drank and beat the children. The neighbors could hear them shrieking any night. They were behind with their rent all the time, but the company was good to them. There was some politics back of that, Grandmother Majauskini could not say just what, but the Lafferties had belonged to the War Whoop League, 
which was a sort of political club of all the thugs and rowdies in the district, and if you belonged to that you could never be arrested for anything. Once upon a time old Lafferty had been caught with a gang that had stolen cows from several of the poor people of the neighborhood, and butchered them in an old shanty back of the yards and sold them. He had been in jail only three days for it, and had come out laughing, and had not even lost his place in the packing-house. He had gone all to ruin with the drink, however, and lost his power. One of his sons, who was a good man, had kept him and the family up for a year or two, but then he had got sick with consumption. That was another thing, Grandmother Majauskini interrupted herself. This house was unlucky. Every family that lived in it, someone was sure to get consumption. Nobody could tell why that was. There must be something about the house, or the way it was built. Some folks said it was because the building had been begun in the dark of the moon. There were dozens of houses that way in Packingtown. Sometimes there would be a particular room that you could point out. If anybody slept in that room he was just as good as dead. With this house it had been the Irish first, and then a Bohemian family had lost a child of it, though to be sure that was uncertain, since it was hard to tell what was the matter with children who worked in the yards. In those days there had been no law about the age of children. The packers had worked all but the babies. At this remark the family looked puzzled, and Grandmother Majauskini again had to make an explanation that it was against the law for children to work before they were sixteen. What was the sense of that? they asked. They had been thinking of letting little Stanislaus go to work. Well, there was no need to worry, Grandmother Majauskini said. The law made no difference except that it forced people to lie about the ages of their children. One would like to know what the lawmakers expected them to do. There were families that had no possible means of support except the children, and the law provided them no other way of getting a living. Very often a man could get no work in Packingtown for months, while a child could go and get a place easily. There was always some new machine by which the packers could get as much work out of a child as they had been able to get out of a man, and for a third of the pay. To come back to the house again, it was the woman of the next family that had died. That was after they had been there nearly four years, and this woman had had twins regularly every year, and there had been more than you could count when they moved in. After she died the man would go to work all day and leave them to shift for themselves. The neighbors would help them now and then, for they would almost freeze to death. At the end there were three days that they were left alone before it was found out that the father was dead. He was a floorsman at Jones's, and a wounded steer had broken loose and mashed him against a pillar. Then the children had been taken away, and the company had sold the house that very same week to a party of emigrants. So this grim old woman went on with her tale of horrors. How much of it was exaggeration? Who could tell? It was only too plausible. There was that about consumption, for instance. They knew nothing about consumption whatever, except that it made people cough, and for two weeks they had been worrying about a coughing spell of Antonas. 
It seemed to shake him all over, and it never stopped. You could see a red stain whenever he had spit upon the floor. And yet all these things were as nothing to what came a little later. They had begun to question the old lady as to why one family had been unable to pay, trying to show her by figures that it ought to have been possible, and Grandmother Majauskini had disputed their figures. You say twelve dollars a month, but that does not include the interest. Then they stared at her. Interest! they cried. Interest on the money you still owe, she answered. But we don't have to pay any interest, they exclaimed, three or four at once. We only have to pay twelve dollars each month. And for this she laughed at them. You are like all the rest, she said. They trick you and eat you alive. They never sell the houses without interest. Get your deed and see. Then, with a horrible sinking of the heart, Teta Elzbeta unlocked her bureau and brought out the paper that had already caused them so many agonies. Now they sat round, scarcely breathing, while the old lady, who could read English, ran over it. Yes, she said finally, here it is, of course, with interest thereon monthly, at the rate of seven per cent per annum. And there followed a dead silence. What does that mean? asked Jurgis, finally, almost in a whisper. That means, replied the other, that you have to pay them seven dollars next month as well as the twelve dollars. Then again there was not a sound. It was sickening, like a nightmare, in which suddenly something gives way beneath you, and you feel yourself sinking, sinking down into bottomless abysses. As if in a flash of lightning they saw themselves, victims of a relentless fate, cornered, trapped in the grip of destruction. All the fair structure of their hopes came crashing about their ears, and all the time the old woman was going on talking. They wished that she would be still. Her voice sounded like the croaking of some dismal raven. Jurgis sat with his hands clenched, and beads of perspiration on his forehead, and there was a great lump in Ona's throat, choking her. Then suddenly Teta Elzbeta broke the silence with a wail, and Maria began to wring her hands and sob. Ay, ay, Bedaman. All their outcry did them no good, of course. There sat Grandmother Miauskini, unrelenting, typifying fate. No, of course it was not fair, but then fairness had nothing to do with it. And of course, they had not known it. They had not been intended to know it, but it was in the deed, and that was all that was necessary, as they would find out when the time came. Somehow or other they got rid of their guest, and then they passed a night of lamentation. The children woke up and found out that something was wrong, and they wailed and would not be comforted. In the morning, of course, most of them had to go to work, the packing-houses would not stop for their sorrows, but by seven o'clock Ona and her stepmother were standing at the door of the office of the agent. Yes, he told them, when he came, it was quite true that they would have to pay interest. And then Teta Elzbeta broke forth into protestations and reproaches, 
so that the people outside stopped and peered in at the window. The agent was as bland as ever. He was deeply pained, he said. He had not told them, simply because he had supposed they would understand that they had to pay interest upon their debt, as a matter of course. So they came away, and Ona went down to the yards, and at noontime saw Jurgis and told him. Jurgis took it stolidly. He had made up his mind to it by this time. It was part of fate. They would manage it somehow. He made his usual answer. I will work harder. It would upset their plans for a time, and it would perhaps be necessary for Ona to get work after all. Then Ona added that Teta Elsbeta had decided that little Stanislaus would have to work too. It was not fair to let Jurgis and her support the family. The family would have to help as it could. Previously Jurgis had scouted this idea, but now knit his brows and nodded his head slowly. Yes, perhaps it would be best. They would all have to make some sacrifices now. So Ona set out that day to hunt for work and at night Maria came home saying that she had met a girl named Yasetite, who had a friend that worked in one of the wrapping-rooms in Brown's, and might get a place for Ona there. Only the forelady was the kind that takes presents. It was no use for anyone to ask her for a place unless at the same time they slipped a ten-dollar bill into her hand. Jurgis was not in the least surprised at this now. He merely asked what the wages of the place would be. So negotiations were opened, and after an interview Ona came home and reported that the forelady seemed to like her, and had said that, while she was not sure, she thought she might be able to put her at work sewing covers on hands, a job at which she would earn as much as eight or ten dollars a week. That was a bid, so Maria reported after consulting with her friend, and then there was an anxious conference at home. The work was done in one of the cellars, and Jurgis did not want Ona to work in such a place, but then it was easy work, and one could not have everything. So in the end Ona, with a ten-dollar bill burning a hole in her palm, had another interview with the forelady. Meantime Teta Elsbeta had taken Stanislavus to a priest and gotten a certificate to the effect that he was two years older than he was, and with it the little boy now sallied forth to make his fortune in the world. It chanced that Durham had just put in a wonderful new lard machine, and when the special policeman in front of the time station saw Stanislavus and his document, he smiled to himself and told him to go, chai, chai, pointing. And so Stanislavus went along a long stone corridor and up a flight of stairs, which took him into a room lighted by electricity, with the new machines for filling lard cans at work in it. The lard was finished on the floor above, and it came in little jets, like beautiful wriggling snow-white snakes of unpleasant odor. There were several kinds and sizes of jets, and after a certain precise quantity had come out, each stopped automatically, and the wonderful machine made a turn and took the can under another jet, and so on, until it was filled neatly to the brim, and pressed tightly, and smoothed off. 
to attend to all this and fill several hundred cans of lard per hour, there were necessary two human creatures, one of whom knew how to place an empty lard can on a certain spot every few seconds, and the other of whom knew how to take a full lard can off a certain spot every few seconds and set it upon a tray. And so, after little Stanislovas had stood gazing timidly about him for a few minutes, a man approached him and asked what he wanted, to which Stanislovas said, Job. Then the man said, How old? And Stanislovas answered, Sixteen. Once or twice every year a state inspector would come wandering through the packing plants, asking a child here and there how old he was, and so the packers were very careful to comply with the law, which cost them as much trouble as was now involved in the bosses taking the document from the little boy, and glancing at it, and then sending it to the office to be filed away. Then he set someone else at a different job, and showed the lad how to place a lard can every time the empty arm of the remorseless machine came to him, and so was decided the place in the universe of little Stanislavus and his destiny till the end of his days. Hour after hour, day after day, year after year, it was fated that he should stand upon a certain square foot of floor from seven in the morning until noon, and again from half-past twelve until half-past five, making never a motion and thinking never a thought, save for the setting of lard cans. In summer, the stench of the warm lard would be nauseating, and in winter the cans would all but freeze to his naked little fingers in the unheated cellar. Half the year it would be dark as night when he went in to work, and dark as night again when he came out, and so he would never know what the sun looked like on weekdays. And for this, at the end of the week, he would carry home three dollars to his family being his pay at the rate of five cents per hour, just about his proper share of the total earnings of the million and three-quarters of children who are now engaged in earning their livings in the United States. And meantime, because they were young, and hope is not to be stifled before its time, Jurgis and Ona were again calculating, for they had discovered that the wages of Stanislavus would a little more than pay the interest which left them just about as they had been before. It would be but fair to them to say that the little boy was delighted with his work, and at the idea of earning a lot of money, and also that the two were very much in love with each other. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter Seven of the Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter Seven. All summer long the family toiled, and in the fall they had money enough for Jurgis and Ona to be married according to home traditions of decency. In the latter part of November they hired a hall and invited all their new acquaintances, who came and left them over a hundred dollars in debt. It was a bitter and cruel experience, and it plunged them into an agony of despair. Such a time of all times for them to have it, 
when their hearts were made tender. Such a pitiful beginning it was for their married life. They loved each other so, and they could not have the briefest respite. It was a time when everything cried out to them that they ought to be happy, when wonder burned in their hearts and leaped into flame at their slightest breath. They were shaken to the depths of them, with the awe of love realized, and was it so very weak of them that they cried out for a little peace? They had opened their hearts like flowers to the springtime, and the merciless winter had fallen upon them. They wondered if ever any love that had blossomed in the world had been so crushed and trampled. Over them, relentless and savage, there cracked the lash of want. The morning after the wedding it sought them as they slept, and drove them out before daybreak to work. Ona was scarcely able to stand with exhaustion, but if she were to lose her place they would be ruined, and she would surely lose it if she were not on time that day. They all had to go, even little Stanislavus, who was ill from overindulgence in sausages and sarsaparilla. All that day he stood at his lard machine, rocking unsteadily, his eyes closing in spite of him, and he all but lost his place even so, for the foreman booted him twice to waken him. It was fully a week before they were all normal again, and meantime, with whining children and cross adults, the house was not a pleasant place to live in. Jurgis lost his temper very little, however, all things considered. It was because of Ona the least glance at her was always enough to make him control himself. She was so sensitive, she was not fitted for such a life as this, and a hundred times a day when he thought of her he would clench his hands and fling himself again at the task before him. She was too good for him, he told himself, and he was afraid because she was his. So long he had hungered to possess her, but now that the time had come he knew that he had not earned the right, that she trusted him so was all her own simple goodness and no virtue of his. But he was resolved that she should never find this out, and so was always on the watch to see that he did not betray any of his ugly self. He would take care, even in little matters, such as his manners, and his habit of swearing when things went wrong. The tears came so easily into Ona's eyes, and she would look at him so appealingly, that it kept Jurgis quite busy making resolutions, in addition to all the other things he had on his mind. It was true that more things were going on at this time in the mind of Jurgis than ever had in all his life before. He had to protect her to do battle for her against the horror he saw about them. He was all that she had to look to, and if he failed she would be lost. He would wrap his arms about her and try to hide her from the world. He had learned the ways of things about him now. It was a war of each against all, and the devil take the hindmost. You did not give feasts to other people, you waited for them to give feasts to you. You went about with your soul full of suspicion and hatred. You understood that you were environed by hostile powers that were trying to get your money, and who used all the virtues to bait their traps with. 
The storekeepers plastered up their windows with all sorts of lies to entice you, the very fences by the wayside, the lamp-posts and telegraph-poles were plastered over with lies. The great corporation which employed you lied to you, and lied to the whole country. From top to bottom it was nothing but one gigantic lie. So Jurgis said that he understood it, and yet it was really pitiful, for the struggle was so unfair. Some had so much the advantage. Here he was, for instance, vowing upon his knees that he would save Ona from harm, and only a week later she was suffering atrociously, and from the blow of an enemy that he could not possibly have thwarted. There came a day when the rain fell in torrents, and it being December, to be wet with it and have to sit all day long in one of those cold cellars of Brown's was no laughing matter. Ona was a working girl, and did not own waterproofs and such things, and so Jurgis took her and put her on the street-car. Now it chanced that this car-line was owned by gentlemen who were trying to make money, and the city having passed an ordinance requiring them to give transfers they had fallen into a rage, and first they had made a rule that transfers could be had only when the fare was paid, and later, growing still uglier, they had made another, that the passenger must ask for the transfer the conductor was not allowed to offer it. Now Ona had been told that she was to get a transfer, but it was not her way to speak up, and so she merely waited, following the conductor about with her eyes, wondering when he would think of her. When at last the time came for her to get out she asked for the transfer, and was refused. Not knowing what to make of this she began to argue with the conductor in a language of which he did not understand a word. After warning her several times he pulled the bell and the car went on, at which Ona burst into tears. At the next corner she got out, of course, and as she had no more money she had to walk the rest of the way to the yards in the pouring rain, and so all day long she sat shivering and came home at night with her teeth chattering and pains in her head and back. For two weeks afterward she suffered cruelly, and yet every day she had to drag herself to her work. The forewoman was especially severe with Ona, because she believed that she was obstinate on account of having been refused a holiday the day after her wedding. Ona had an idea that her forelady did not like to have her girls marry, perhaps because she was old and ugly and unmarried herself. There were many such dangers in which the odds were all against them. Their children were not as well as they had been at home, but how could they know that there was no sewer to their house, and that the drainage of fifteen years was in a cesspool under it? How could they know that the pale blue milk that they bought around the corner was watered and doctored with formaldehyde besides? When the children were not well at home, Teta Elzbeta would gather herbs and cure them. Now she was obliged to go to the drug store and buy extracts, and how was she to know that they were all adulterated? How could they find out that their tea and coffee, their sugar and flour had been doctored, that their canned peas had been colored with copper salts, 
and their fruit jams with aniline dyes. And even if they had known it, what good would it have done them, since there was no place within miles of them where any other sort was to be had? The bitter winter was coming, and they had to save money to get more clothing and bedding, but it would not matter in the least how much they saved, they could not get anything to keep them warm. All the clothing that was to be had in the stores was made of cotton and shoddy, which is made by tearing old clothes to pieces and weaving the fiber again. If they paid higher prices they might get frills and fancies, or be cheated. But genuine quality they could not obtain for love nor money. A young friend of Shadvilas, recently come from abroad, had become a clerk in a store on Ashland Avenue and he narrated with glee a trick that had been played upon an unsuspecting countryman by his boss. The customer had desired to purchase an alarm clock, and the boss had shown him two exactly similar, telling him that the price of one was a dollar, and of the other a dollar seventy-five. Upon being asked what the difference was, the man had wound up the first halfway and the second all the way and showed the customer how the latter made twice as much noise, upon which the customer remarked that he was a sound sleeper, and had better take the more expensive clock. There is a poet who sings that, Deeper their heart grows, and nobler their bearing, Whose youth in the fires of anguish hath died. But it was not likely that he had reference to the kind of anguish that comes with destitution that is so endlessly bitter and cruel, and yet so sorrow and petty, so ugly, so humiliating, unredeemed by the slightest touch of dignity or even of pathos. It is a kind of anguish that poets have not commonly dealt with. Its very words are not admitted into the vocabulary of poets. The details of it cannot be told in polite society at all. How, for instance, could anyone expect to excite sympathy among lovers of good literature by telling how a family found their home alive with vermin, and of all the suffering and inconvenience and humiliation they were put to, and the hard-earned money they spent in efforts to get rid of them? After long hesitation and uncertainty they paid twenty-five cents for a big package of insect powder, a patent preparation which chanced to be ninety-five percent gypsum, a harmless earth which had cost about two cents to prepare. Of course it had not the least effect, except upon a few roaches which had the misfortune to drink water after eating it, and so got their innards set in a coating of plaster of Paris. The family, having no idea of this, and no more money to throw away, had nothing to do but give up and submit to one more misery for the rest of their days. Then there was old Antanas. The winter came, and the place where he worked was a dark, unheated cellar where you could see your breath all day, and where your fingers sometimes tried to freeze. So the old man's cough grew every day worse, until there came a time when it hardly ever stopped, and he had become a nuisance about the place. Then, too, a still more dreadful thing happened to him. He worked in a place where his feet were soaked in chemicals, and it was not long before they had eaten through his new boots. 
Then sores began to break out on his feet, and grow worse and worse. Whether it was that his blood was bad, or there had been a cut, he could not say. But he asked the men about it, and learned that it was a regular thing. It was the saltpeter. Every one felt it sooner or later, and then it was all up with him, at least for that sort of work. The sores would never heal. In the end his toes would drop off if he did not quit. Yet old Antinous would not quit. He saw the suffering of his family, and he remembered what it had cost him to get a job. So he tied up his feet and went on limping about and coughing, until at last he fell to pieces all at once and in a heap like the one-horse shay. They carried him to a dry place and laid him on the floor, and that night two of the men helped him home. The poor old man was put to bed, and though he tried it every morning until the end, he never could get up again. He would lie there and cough and cough, day and night, wasting away to a mere skeleton. There came a time when there was so little flesh on him that the bones began to poke through, which was a horrible thing to see or even to think of. And one night he had a coughing fit, and a little river of blood came out of his mouth. The family, wild with terror, sent for a doctor, and paid half a dollar to be told that there was nothing to be done. Mercifully the doctor did not say this so that the old man could hear, for he was still clinging to the faith that tomorrow or next day he would be better, and could go back to his job. The company had sent word to him that they would keep it for him, or rather Jurgis had bribed one of the men to come one Sunday afternoon and say they had. Dede Antinas continued to believe it, while three more hemorrhages came, and then at last one morning they found him stiff and cold. Things were not going well with them then, and though it nearly broke Teta Elspeta's heart, they were forced to dispense with nearly all the decencies of a funeral. They had only a hearse and one hack for the women and children, and Jurgis, who was learning things fast, spent all Sunday making a bargain for these, and he made it in the presence of witnesses, so that when the man tried to charge him for all sorts of incidentals he did not have to pay. For twenty-five years old Antonas Rutkus and his son had dwelt in the forest together, and it was hard to part in this way. Perhaps it was just as well that Jurgis had to give all his attention to the task of having a funeral without being bankrupted, and so had no time to indulge in memories and grief. Now the dreadful winter was upon them. In the forests, all summer long, the branches of the trees do battle for light, and some of them lose and die, and then come the raging blasts and the storms of snow and hail, and strew the ground with these weaker branches. Just so it was in Packingtown. The whole district braced itself for the struggle that was in agony, and those whose time had come died off in hordes. All the year round they had been serving as cogs in the great packing machine, and now was the time for the renovating of it, and the replacing of damaged parts. There came pneumonia and grip, stalking among them, seeking for weakened constitutions, 
there was the annual harvest of those whom tuberculosis had been dragging down. There came cruel, cold, and biting winds and blizzards of snow, all testing relentlessly for failing muscles and impoverished blood. Sooner or later came the day when the unfit one did not report for work, and then, with no time lost in waiting and no inquiries or regrets, there was a chance for a new hand. The new hands were here by the thousands. All day long the gates of the packing-houses were besieged by starving and penniless men. They came literally by the thousands every single morning, fighting with each other for a chance for life. Blizzards and cold made no difference to them. They were always on hand. They were on hand two hours before the sun rose, an hour before the work began. Sometimes their faces froze, sometimes their feet and their hands, sometimes they froze altogether, but still they came, for they had no other place to go. One day Durham advertised in the paper for two hundred men to cut ice, and all that day the homeless and starving of the city came trudging through the snow from all over its two hundred square miles. That night forty score of them crowded into the station-house of the stockyards district. They filled the rooms, sleeping in each other's laps, toboggan fashion, and they piled on top of each other in the corridors, till the police shut the doors and left some to freeze outside. On the morrow, before daybreak, there were three thousand at Durham's, and the police reserves had to be sent for to quell the riot. Then Durham's bosses picked out twenty of the biggest. The two hundred proved to have been a printer's error. Four or five miles to the eastward lay the lake, and over this the bitter winds came raging. Sometimes the thermometer would fall to ten or twenty degrees below zero at night, and in the morning the streets would be piled with snowdrifts up to the first-floor windows. The streets through which our friends had to go to work were all unpaved and full of deep holes and gullies. In summer, when it rained hard, a man might have to wade to his waist to get to his house, and now in winter it was no joke getting through these places, before light in the morning and after dark at night. They would wrap up in all they owned, but they could not wrap up against exhaustion, and many a man gave out in these battles with the snowdrifts, and lay down, and fell asleep. And if it was bad for the men, one may imagine how the women and children fared. Some would ride in the cars, if the cars were running. But when you are making only five cents an hour, as was little Stanislavus, you do not like to spend that much to ride two miles. The children would come to the yards with great shawls about their ears, and so tied up that you could hardly find them, and still there would be accidents. One bitter morning in February the little boy who worked at the lard machine with Stanislavus came about an hour late, and screaming with pain. They unwrapped him, and a man began vigorously rubbing his ears, and as they were frozen stiff, it took only two or three rubs to break them short off. As a result of this little Stanislavus conceived a terror of the cold that was almost a mania. Every morning, when it came time to start for the yards, he would begin to cry and protest. Nobody knew quite how to manage him, for threats did no good. It seemed to be something that he could not control, 
and they feared sometimes that he would go into convulsions. In the end it had to be arranged that he always went with Jurgis, and came home with him again, and often, when the snow was deep, the man would carry him the whole way on his shoulders. Sometimes Jurgis would be working until late at night, and then it was pitiful, for there was no place for the little fellow to wait, save in the doorways or in a corner of the killing beds, and he would all but fall asleep there and freeze to death. There was no heat upon the killing beds. The men might exactly as well have worked out of doors all winter. For that matter, there was very little heat anywhere in the building, except in the cooking-rooms and such places, and it was the men who worked in these who ran the most risk of all, because whenever they had to pass to another room they had to go through ice-cold corridors, and sometimes with nothing on above the waist except a sleeveless undershirt. On the killing beds you were apt to be covered with blood, and it would freeze solid. If you leaned against a pillar you would freeze to that, and if you put your hand upon the blade of your knife you would run a chance of leaving your skin on it. The men would tie up their feet in newspapers and old sacks, and these would be soaked in blood and frozen, and then soaked again, and so on, until by night-time a man would be walking on great lumps the size of the feet of an elephant. Now and then, when the bosses were not looking, you would see them plunging their feet and ankles into the steaming hot carcass of the steer, or darting across the room to the hot water-jets. The cruelest thing of all was that nearly all of them, all of those who used knives, were unable to wear gloves, and their arms would be white with frost, and their hands would grow numb, and then, of course, there would be accidents. Also, the air would be full of steam from the hot water and the hot blood, so that you could not see five feet before you, and then, with men rushing about at the speed they kept up on the killing beds, and all with butcher knives, like razors in their hands, well, it was to be counted as a wonder that there were not more men slaughtered than cattle, and yet all this inconvenience they might have put up with, if only it had not been for one thing if only there had been some place where they might eat. Jurgis had either to eat his dinner amid the stench in which he had worked, or else to rush, as did all his companions, to any one of the hundreds of liquor stores which stretched out their arms to him. To the west of the yards ran Ashland Avenue, and here was an unbroken line of saloons, Whiskey Row they called it. To the north was 47th Street, where there were half a dozen to the block, and at the angle of the two was Whiskey Point, a space of fifteen or twenty acres, and containing one glue factory and about two hundred saloons. One might walk among these and take his choice. Hot pea soup and boiled cabbage today, sauerkraut and hot frankfurters walk in, bean soup and stewed lamb welcome. All of these things were printed in many languages, as were also the names of the resorts, which were infinite in their variety and appeal. There was the home circle, and the cozy corner. There were firesides, and hearthstones, and pleasure palaces, and wonderlands, and dream castles, and love's delights. Whatever else they were called, they were sure to be called Union Headquarters 
and to hold out a welcome to workingmen. And there was always a warm stove and a chair near it, and some friends to laugh and talk with. There was only one condition attached. You must drink. If you went in not intending to drink, you would be put out in no time, and if you were slow about going, like as not, you would get your head split open with a beer bottle in the bargain. But all of the men understood the convention and drank. They believed that by it they were getting something for nothing, for they did not need to take more than one drink, and upon the strength of it they might fill themselves up with a good hot dinner. This did not always work out in practice, however, for there was pretty sure to be a friend who would treat you, and then you would have to treat him. Then someone else would come in, and anyhow a few drinks were good for a man who worked hard. As he went back he did not shiver so. He had more courage for his task. The deadly, brutalizing monotony of it did not afflict him so. He had ideas while he worked, and took a more cheerful view of his circumstances. On the way home, however, the shivering was apt to come on him again and so he would have to stop once or twice to warm up against the cruel cold. As there were hot things to eat in this saloon, too, he might get home late to his supper, or he might not get home at all, and then his wife might set out to look for him, and she too would feel the cold, and perhaps she would have some of the children with her, and so a whole family would drift into drinking as the current of a river drifts downstream. As if to complete the chain, the packers all paid their men in checks, refusing all requests to be paid in coin. And where in Packingtown could a man go to have his check cashed, but to a saloon, where he could pay for the favor by spending a part of the money? From all of these things Jurgis was saved because of Ona. He never would take but the one drink at noontime, and so he got the reputation of being a surly fellow, and was not quite welcome at the saloons, and had to drift about from one to another. Then at night he would go straight home, helping Ona and Stanislavus, or often putting the former on a car, and when he got home perhaps he would have to trudge several blocks and come staggering back through the snowdrifts with a bag of coal upon his shoulder. Home was not a very attractive place at least not this winter. They had only been able to buy one stove, and this was a small one, and proved not big enough to warm even the kitchen in the bitterest weather. This made it hard for Teta Elsbeta all day, and for the children who they could not get to school. At night they would sit huddled round this stove while they ate their supper off their laps, and then Jurgis and Jonas would smoke a pipe after which they would all crawl into their beds to get warm, after putting out the fire to save the cold. Then they would have some frightful experiences with the cold. They would sleep with all their clothes on, including their overcoats, and put over them all the bedding and spare clothing they owned. The children would sleep all crowded into one bed, and yet even so they could not keep warm. The outside ones would be shivering and sobbing, crawling over the others and trying to get down into the center and causing a fight. This old house with the leaky weatherboards was a very different thing from their cabins at home. 
with great thick walls plastered inside and outside with mud. And the cold which came upon them was a living thing, a demon presence in the room. They would waken in the midnight hours when everything was black. Perhaps they would hear it yelling outside, or perhaps there would be death-like stillness, and that would be worse yet. They could feel the cold as it crept in through the cracks, reaching out for them with its icy, death-dealing fingers, and they would crouch and cower and try to hide from it, all in vain. It would come, and it would come, a grisly thing, a specter born in the black caverns of terror, a power primeval, cosmic, shadowing the tortures of the lost souls flung out to chaos and destruction. It was cruel iron-hard, and hour after hour they would cringe in its grasp, alone, alone. There would be no one to hear them if they cried out. There would be no help, no mercy. And so on until morning, when they would go out to another day of toil, a little weaker, a little nearer to the time when it would be their turn to be shaken from the tree. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 8 of The Jungle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 8. Yet even by this deadly winter the germ of hope was not to be kept from sprouting in their hearts. It was just at this time that the great adventure befell Maria. The victim was Tamosius Kuschleika, who played the violin. Everybody laughed at them, for Tamosius was petite and frail, and Maria could have picked him up and carried him off under one arm. But perhaps that was why she fascinated him. The sheer volume of Maria's energy was overwhelming. That first night at the wedding Tamosius had hardly taken his eyes off her, and later on, when he came to find that she had really the heart of a baby, her voice and her violence ceased to terrify him, and he got the habit of coming to pay her visits on Sunday afternoons. There was no place to entertain company except in the kitchen, in the midst of the family, and Timotius would sit there with his hat between his knees, never saying more than half a dozen words at a time, and turning red in the face before he managed to say those, until finally Jurgis would clap him upon the back in his hearty way, crying, "'Come now, brother, give us a tune,' and then Tomosius' face would light up, and he would get out his fiddle, tuck it under his chin, and play. And forthwith the soul of him would flame up and become eloquent. It was almost an impropriety, for all the while his gaze would be fixed upon Maria's face, until she would begin to turn red and lower her eyes." There was no resisting the music of Tamosius, however even the children would sit awed and wondering, and the tears would run down Teta Elzbeta's cheeks. A wonderful privilege it was to be thus admitted into the soul of a man of genius, to be allowed to share the ecstasies and the agonies of his inmost life, 
Then there were other benefits accruing to Maria from this friendship, benefits of a more substantial nature. People paid Timotius big money to come and make music on state occasions, and also they would invite him to parties and festivals, knowing well that he was too good-natured to come without his fiddle, and that having brought it he could be made to play while others danced. Once he made bold to ask Maria to accompany him to such a party, and Maria accepted, to his great delight, after which he never went anywhere without her, while if the celebration were given by friends of his he would invite the rest of the family also. In any case Maria would bring back a huge pocketful of cakes and sandwiches for the children, and stories of all the good things she herself had managed to consume. She was compelled at these parties to spend most of her time at the refreshment table, for she could not dance with anybody except other women and very old men. Timotius was of an excitable temperament, and afflicted with a frantic jealousy, and any unmarried man who ventured to put his arm about the ample waist of Maria would be certain to throw the orchestra out of tune. It was a great help to a person who had to toil all the week to be able to look forward to some such relaxation as this on Saturday nights. The family was too poor and too hard work to make many acquaintances. In Packingtown, as a rule, people know only their near neighbors and shopmates, and so the place is like a myriad of little country villages. But now there was a member of the family who was permitted to travel and widen her horizon, and so each week there would be new personalities to talk about, how so-and-so was dressed, and where she worked, and what she got and whom she was in love with, and how this man had jilted his girl, and how she had quarreled with the other girl, and what had passed between them, and how another man beat his wife, and spent all her earnings upon drink, and pawned her very clothes. Some people would have scorned this talk as gossip, but then one has to talk about what one knows. It was one Saturday night, as they were coming home from a wedding, that Timotius found courage and set down his violin case in the street and spoke his heart. And then Maria clasped him in her arms. She told them all about it the next day, and fairly cried with happiness, for she said that Timotius was a lovely man. After that he no longer made love to her with his fiddle, but they would sit for hours in the kitchen blissfully happy in each other's arms. It was the tacit convention of the family to know nothing of what was going on in that corner. They were planning to be married in the spring, and have the garret of the house fixed up and live there. Timotius made good wages, and little by little the family were paying back their debt to Maria, so she ought soon to have enough to start life upon, only with her preposterous soft-heartedness she would insist upon spending a good part of her money every week for things which she saw they needed. Maria was really the capitalist of the party, for she had become an expert can-painter by this time. She was getting fourteen cents for every hundred and ten cans, and she could paint more than two cans every minute. Maria felt, so to speak, that she had her hand on the throttle, and the neighborhood was vocal with her rejoicings yet her friends would shake their heads and tell her to go slow. One could not count upon such good fortune forever, 
there were accidents that always happened. But Maria was not to be prevailed upon, and went on planning and dreaming of all the treasures she was going to have for her home. And so, when the crash did come, her grief was painful to see. For her canning factory shut down. Maria would about as soon have expected to see the sun shut down. The huge establishment had been to her a thing akin to the planets and the seasons. But now it was shut. And they had not given her any explanation. They had not even given her a day's warning. They had simply posted a notice one Saturday that all hands would be paid off that afternoon and would not resume work for at least a month. And that was all there was to it. Her job was gone. It was the holiday rush that was over, the girl said in answer to Maria's inquiries. After that there was always a slack. Sometimes the factory would start up on half-time after a while, but there was no telling. It had been known to stay closed until way into the summer. The prospects were bad at present, for truckmen who worked in the storerooms said that these were piled up to the ceilings, so that the firm could not have found room for another week's output of cans, and they had turned off three-quarters of these men, which was a still worse sign, since it meant that there were no orders to be filled. It was all a swindle, can-painting, said the girls. You were crazy with delight because you were making twelve or fourteen dollars a week, and saving half of it, but you had to spend it all keeping alive while you were out, and so your pay was really only half what you thought. Maria came home, and because she was a person who could not rest without danger of explosion, they first had a great house-cleaning, and then she set out to search Packingtown for a job to fill up the gap. As nearly all the canning establishments were shut down, at all the girls hunting work, it will be readily understood that Maria did not find any. Then she took to trying the stores and saloons, and when this failed she even traveled over into the far distant regions near the lakefront, where lived the rich people in great palaces, and begged there for some sort of work that could be done by a person who did not know English. The men upon the killing beds felt also the effects of the slump which had turned Maria out, but they felt it in a different way, and a way which made Jurgis understand at last all their bitterness. The big packers did not turn their hands off and close down like the canning factories, but they began to run for shorter and shorter hours. They had always required the men to be on the killing beds and ready for work at seven o'clock although there was almost never any work to be done till the buyers out in the yards had gotten to work, and some cattle had come over the chutes. That would often be ten or eleven o'clock, which was bad enough in all conscience. But now, in the slack season, they would perhaps not have a thing for their men to do till late in the afternoon. And so they would have to lope around, in a place where the thermometer might be twenty degrees below zero. At first one would see them running about, or skylarking with each other, trying to keep warm, but before the day was over they would become quite chilled through and exhausted, and when the cattle finally came, so near frozen that to move was an agony. And then suddenly the place would spring into activity, and the merciless speeding up would begin. 
There were weeks at a time when Jurgis went home after such a day as this with not more than two hours' work to his credit, which meant about thirty-five cents. There were many days when the total was less than half an hour, and others when there was none at all. The general average was six hours a day, which meant for Jurgis about six dollars a week, and this six hours of work wouldn't be done after standing on the killing bed till one o'clock or perhaps even three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Like as not, there would come a rush of cattle at the very end of the day, which the men would have to dispose of before they went home, often working by electric light till nine or ten, or even twelve or one o'clock, and without a single instant for a bite of supper. The men were at the mercy of the cattle. Perhaps the buyers would be holding off for better prices, if they could scare the shippers into thinking that they meant to buy nothing that day, they could get their own terms. For some reason the cost of fodder for cattle in the yards was much above the market price, and you were not allowed to bring your own fodder. Then, too, a number of cars were apt to arrive late in the day, now that the roads were blocked with snow, and the packers would buy their cattle that night to get them cheaper and then would come into play their ironclad rule, that all cattle must be killed the same day they were bought. There was no use kicking about this. There had been one delegation after another to see the packers about it, only to be told that it was the rule, and that there was not the slightest chance of its ever being altered. And so on Christmas Eve Jurgis worked till nearly one o'clock in the morning, and on Christmas Day he was on the killing bed at seven o'clock. All this was bad, and yet it was not the worst. For after all the hard work a man did, he was paid for only part of it. Jurgis had once been among those who scoffed at the idea of these huge concerns cheating, and so now he could appreciate the bitter irony of the fact that it was precisely their size which enabled them to do it with impunity. One of the rules on the killing beds was that a man who was one minute late was docked an hour, and this was economical, for he was made to work the balance of the hour, he was not allowed to stand round and wait, and on the other hand, if he came ahead of time, he got no pay for that, though often the bosses would start up the gang ten or fifteen minutes before the whistle. And this same custom they carried over to the end of the day. They did not pay for any fraction of an hour for a broken time. A man might work full fifty minutes, but if there was no work to fill out the hour, there was no pay for him. Thus the end of every day was a sort of lottery, a struggle all but breaking into open war between the bosses and the men, the former trying to rush a job through and the latter trying to stretch it out. Jurgis blamed the bosses for this, though the truth to be told it was not always their fault, for the packers kept them frightened for their lives, and when one was in danger of falling behind the standard, what was easier than to catch up by making the gang work a while for the church? This was a savage witticism the men had, which Jurgis had to have explained to him. Old man Jones was great on missions and such things and so, whenever they were doing some particularly disreputable job, the men would wink at each other and say, Now we're working for the church. One of the consequences of all these things 
was that Jurgis was no longer perplexed when he heard the men talk of fighting for their rights. He felt like fighting now himself, and when the Irish delegate of the Butcher's Helpers' Union came to him a second time, he received him in a far different spirit. A wonderful idea it now seemed to Jurgis, this of the men, that by combining they might be able to make a stand and conquer the packers. Jurgis wondered who had first thought of it, and when he was told that it was a common thing for men to do in America, he got the first inkling of a meaning in the phrase, a free country. The delegate explained to him how it depended upon their being able to get every man to join and stand by the organization, and so Jurgis signified that he was willing to do his share. Before another month was by, all the working members of his family had union cards and wore their union buttons conspicuously and with pride. For fully a week they were quite blissfully happy, thinking that belonging to a union meant an end to all their troubles. But only ten days after she had joined, Maria's canning factory closed down, and that blow quite staggered them. They could not understand why the union had not prevented it, and the very first time she attended a meeting Maria got up and made a speech about it. It was a business meeting, and was transacted in English, but that made no difference to Maria. She said what was in her, and all the pounding of the chairman's gavel, and all the uproar and confusion in the room could not prevail. Quite apart from her own troubles she was boiling over with a general sense of the injustice of it, and she told what she thought of the packers, and what she thought of a world where such things were allowed to happen. And then, while the echoes of the hall rang with the shock of her terrible voice, she sat down again and fanned herself, and the meeting gathered itself together and proceeded to discuss the election of a recording secretary. Jurgis, too, had an adventure for the first time he attended a union meeting, but it was not of his own seeking. Jurgis had gone with the desire to get into an inconspicuous corner and see what was done, but this attitude of silent and open-eyed attention had marked him out for a victim. Tommy Finnegan was a little Irishman, with big staring eyes and a wild aspect, a hoister by trade, and badly cracked. Somewhere back in the far distant past Tommy Finnegan had had a strange experience, and the burden of it rested upon him. All the balance of his life he had done nothing but try to make it understood. When he talked he caught his victim by the buttonhole, and his face kept coming closer and closer, which was trying because his teeth were so bad. Jurgis did not mind that, only he was frightened. The method of operation of the higher intelligences was Tom Finnegan's theme, and he desired to find out if Jurgis had ever considered that the representation of things in their present similarity might be altogether unintelligible upon a more elevated plane. There were assuredly wonderful mysteries about the developing of these things, and then, becoming confidential, Mr. Finnegan proceeded to tell of some discoveries of his own. "'If ye ever had anything to do with spirits,' said he, and looked inquiringly at Jurgis, who kept shaking his head. "'Never mind, never mind,' continued the other. "'But their influences may be operating upon ye. It's sure as I'm telling ye 
it's them that has the reference to the immediate surroundings that has the most of power it was vouchsafed to me in me youthful days to be acquainted with spirits and so tommy finnegan went on expounding a system of philosophy while the perspiration came out on jurgis forehead so great was his agitation and embarrassment in the end one of the men seeing his plight came over and rescued him but it was some time before he was able to find any one to explain things to him and meanwhile his fear lest the strange little irishman should get him cornered again was enough to keep him dodging about the room the whole evening he never missed a meeting however he had picked up a few words of english by this time and friends would help him to understand they were often very turbulent meetings with half a dozen men declaiming at once in as many dialects of english but the speakers were all desperately in earnest and jurgis was in earnest too for he understood that a fight was on and that it was his fight since the time of his disillusionment jurgis had sworn to trust no man except in his own family but here he discovered that he had brothers in affliction and allies their one chance for life was in union, and so the struggle became a kind of crusade. Jurgis had always been a member of the church, because it was the right thing to be, but the church had never touched him. He left all that for the women. Here, however, was a new religion, one that did touch him, that took hold of every fiber of him, and with all the zeal and fury of a convert he went out as a missionary. There were many non-union men among the Lithuanians, and with these he would labor and wrestle in prayer, trying to show them the right. Sometimes they would be obstinate and refuse to see it, and Jurgis at last was not always patient. He forgot how he himself had been blind a short time ago, after the fashion of all crusaders since the original ones, who set out to spread the gospel of brotherhood by force of arms. End of chapter 8. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 9 of The Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter 9 one of the first consequences of the discovery of the union was that jurgis became desirous of learning english he wanted to know what was going on at the meetings and to be able to take part in them and so he began to look about him and to try to pick up words the children who were at school and learning fast would teach him a few and a friend loaned him a little book that had some in it and ona would read them to him then Jurgis became sorry that he could not read himself, and later on in the winter, when someone told him that there was a night school that was free, he went and enrolled. After that, every evening that he got home from the yards in time, he would go to the school. He would go even if he were in time for only half an hour. They were teaching him both to read and to speak English, and they would have taught him other things if only he had had a little time. Also the union made another great difference with him. 
it made him begin to pay attention to the country. It was the beginning of democracy with him. It was a little state, the Union, a miniature republic. Its affairs were every man's affairs, and every man had a real say about them. In other words, in the Union Jurgis learned to talk politics. In the place where he had come from there had not been any politics. In Russia one thought of the government as an affliction, like the lightning and the hail. "'Duck, little brother, duck!' the wise old peasants would whisper. "'Everything passes away.' And when Jurgis had first come to America he had supposed that it was the same. He had heard people say that it was a free country, but what did that mean? He found that here, precisely as in Russia, there were rich men who owned everything, and if one could not find any work, was not the hunger he began to feel the same sort of hunger? When Jurgis had been working about three weeks at Brown's, there had come to him one noontime a man who was employed as a night watchman and who asked him if he would not like to take out naturalization papers and become a citizen. Jurgis did not know what that meant, but the man explained the advantages. In the first place it would not cost him anything, and it would get him half a day off, with his pay just the same. And then when election time came he would be able to vote, and there was something in that. Jurgis was naturally glad to accept, and so the night watchman said a few words to the boss, and he was excused for the rest of the day. When, later on, he wanted a holiday to get married, he could not get it, and as for a holiday with pay just the same, what power had wrought that miracle heaven only knew? However, he went with the man, who picked up several other newly landed immigrants, Poles, Lithuanians, and Slovaks, and took them all outside, where stood a great four-horse tallyho coach, with fifteen or twenty men already in it. It was a fine chance to see the sights of the city, and the party had a merry time, with plenty of beer handed up from inside. So they drove downtown and stopped before an imposing granite building, in which they interviewed an official who had the papers all ready, with only the names to be filled in. So each man, in turn, took an oath, of which he did not understand a word, and then was presented with a handsome ornamented document with a big red seal and the shield of the United States upon it, and was told that he had become a citizen of the Republic and the equal of the President himself. A month or two later Jurgis had another interview with this same man, who told him where to go to register. And then finally, when election day came, the packing-houses posted a notice that men who desired to vote might remain away until nine that morning, and the same night watchman took Jurgis and the rest of his flock into the back room of a saloon and showed each of them where and how to mark a ballot, and then gave each two dollars and took them to the polling-place, where there was a policeman on duty, especially to see that they got through all right. Jurgis felt quite proud of this good luck, till he got home and met Jonas, who had taken the leader aside and whispered to him, offering to vote 
three times for four dollars, which offer had been accepted. And now in the Union Jurgis met men who explained all this mystery to him, and he learned that America differed from Russia in that its government existed under the form of a democracy. The officials who ruled it and got all the graft had to be elected first, and so there were two rival sets of grafters, known as political parties, and the one got the office who bought the most votes. Now and then the election was very close, and that was the time the poor man came in. In the stockyards this was only in national and state elections, for in local elections the Democratic Party always carried everything. The ruler of the district was therefore the Democratic boss, a little Irishman named Mike Scully. Scully held an important party office in the state, and bossed even the mayor of the city, it was said. It was his boast that he carried the stockyards in his pocket. He was an enormously rich man. He had a hand in all the big graft in the neighborhood. It was Scully, for instance, who owned that dump which Jurgis and Ona had seen the first day of their arrival. Not only did he own the dump, but he owned the brick factory as well, and first he took out the clay and made it into bricks, and then he had the city bring garbage to fill up the hole so that he could build houses to sell to the people. Then, too, he sold the bricks to the city at his own price, and the city came and got them in its wagons. And also he owned the other hole nearby, where the stagnant water was, and it was he who cut the ice and sold it, and what was more, if the men told truth, he had not had to pay any taxes for the water, and he had built the ice-house out of city lumber, and had not had to pay anything for that. The newspapers had got hold of that story, and there had been a scandal, but Scully had hired somebody to confess and take all the blame, and then skip the country. It was said, too, that he had built his brick kiln in the same way, and that the workmen were on the city payroll while they did it. However, one had to press closely to get these things out of the men, for it was not their business, and Mike Scully was a good man to stand in with. A note signed by him was equal to a job any time at the packing-houses, and also he employed a good many men himself, and worked them only eight hours a day, and paid them the highest wages. This gave him many friends, all of whom he had gotten together into the War Whoop League, whose clubhouse you might see just outside the yards. It was the biggest clubhouse and the biggest club in all Chicago, and they had prize-fights every now and then, and cock-fights, and even dog-fights. The policemen in the district all belonged to the League, and instead of suppressing the fights they sold tickets for them. The man that had taken Jurgis to be naturalized was one of these Indians, as they were called, and on election day there would be hundreds of them out, and all with big wads of money in their pockets and free drinks at every saloon in the district. That was another thing, the men said. All the saloon-keepers had to be Indians, and to put up on demand, otherwise they could not do business on Sundays nor have any gambling at all. 
In the same way Scully had all the jobs in the fire department at his disposal, and all the rest of the city graft in the stockyards district. He was building a block of flats somewhere up on Ashland Avenue, and the man who was overseeing it for him was drawing pay as a city inspector of sewers. The city inspector of water pipes had been dead and buried for over a year, but somebody was still drawing his pay. The city inspector of sidewalks was a barkeeper at the War Whoop Café, and maybe he could make it uncomfortable for any tradesman who did not stand in with Sully. Even the packers were in awe of him, so the men said. It gave them pleasure to believe this, for Scully stood as the people's man, and boasted of it boldly when election day came. The packers had wanted a bridge at Ashland Avenue, but they had not been able to get it till they had seen Scully. And it was the same with Bubbly Creek, which the city had threatened to make the packers cover over till Scully had come to their aid. Bubbly Creek is an arm of the Chicago River, and forms the southern boundary of the yards. All the drainage of the square mile of packing houses empties into it, so that it is really a great open sewer a hundred or two feet wide. One long arm of it is blind, and the filth stays there forever and a day. The grease and chemicals that are poured into it undergo all sorts of strange transformations, which are the cause of its name. It is constantly in motion, as if huge fish were feeding in it, or great leviathans disporting themselves in its depths. Bubbles of carbonic acid gas will rise to the surface and burst, and make rings two or three feet wide. Here and there the grease and filth have caked solid, and the creek looks like a bed of lava. Chickens walk about on it, feeding, and many times an unwary stranger has started to stroll across and vanished temporarily. The packers used to leave the creek that way, till every now and then the surface would catch on fire and burn furiously, and the fire department would have to come and put it out. Once, however, an ingenious stranger came, and started to gather this filth in scows, to make lard out of, and then the packers took the cue, and got an injunction to stop him, and afterward gathered it themselves. The banks of Bubbly Creek are plastered thick with hairs, and this also the packers gather and clean. And there were things even stranger than this, according to the gossip of the men. The packers had secret mains through which they stole billions of gallons of the city's water. The newspapers had been full of this scandal. Once there had even been an investigation, and an actual uncovering of the pipes, but nobody had been punished, and the thing went right on. And then there was the condemned meat industry, with its endless horrors. The people of Chicago saw the government inspectors in Packingtown and they all took that to mean that they were protected from diseased meat. They did not understand that these hundred and sixty-three inspectors had been appointed at the request of the packers, and that they were paid by the United States government to certify that all the diseased meat was kept in the state. They had no authority beyond that. For the inspection of meat to be sold in the city and state, the whole force in Packingtown consisted of three henchmen of the local 
political machine. Rules and Regulations for the Inspection of Livestock and Their Products United States Department of Agriculture, Bureau of Animal Industries, Order Number 125 Section 1 Proprietors of slaughterhouses, canning, salting, packing, or rendering establishments engaged in the slaughtering of cattle, sheep, or swine, or the packing of any of their products, the carcasses or products of which are to become subjects of interstate or foreign commerce, shall make application to the Secretary of Agriculture for inspection of said animals and their products. Section 15 such rejected or condemned animals shall at once be removed by the owners from the pens containing animals which have been inspected and found to be free from disease and fit for human food, and shall be disposed of in accordance with the laws, ordinances, and regulations of the state and municipality in which said rejected or condemned animals are located. Section 25. A Microscopic Examination for Trichini made of all swine products exported to countries requiring such examination. No microscopic examination will be made of hogs slaughtered for interstate trade, but this examination shall be confined to those intended for the export trade. And shortly afterward one of these, a physician, made the discovery that the carcasses of steers which had been condemned as tubercular by the government inspectors, and which therefore contained tomains, which are deadly poisons, were left upon an open platform and carted away to be sold in the city. And so he insisted that these carcasses be treated with an injection of kerosene, and was ordered to resign the same week. So indignant were the packers that they went farther and compelled the mayor to abolish the whole Bureau of Inspection, so that since then there has not been even a pretense of any interference with the graft. There was said to be two thousand dollars a week hush money from the tubercular steers alone, and as much again from the hogs which had died of cholera on the trains, and which you might see any day being loaded into box-cars and hauled away to a place called Globe in Indiana, where they made a fancy grade of lard. Jurgis heard of these things little by little, in the gossip of those who were obliged to perpetrate them. It seemed as if every time you met a person from a new department you heard of new swindles and new crimes. There was, for instance, a Lithuanian who was a cattle butcher for the plant where Maria had worked, which killed meat for canning only, and to hear this man describe the animals which came to his place would have been worth while for a Dante or a Zola. It seemed that they must have agencies all over the country to hunt out old and crippled and diseased cattle to be canned. There were cattle which had been fed on whiskey malt, the refuse of the breweries, and had become what the men called steerly, which means covered with boils. It was a nasty job killing these, for when you plunged your knife into them they would burst and splash foul-smelling stuff into your face and when a man's sleeves were smeared with blood and his hands steeped in it, how was he ever to wipe his face or to clear his eyes so that he could see? It was stuff such as this that made the embalmed beef that had killed several times as many United States soldiers as all the bullets of the Spaniards. 
Only the army beef, besides, was not fresh canned. It was old stuff that had been lying for years in the cellars. Then, one Sunday evening, Jurgis sat puffing his pipe by the kitchen stove, and talking with an old fellow whom Jonas had introduced, and who worked in the canning rooms at Durham's, and so Jurgis learned a few things about the great and only Durham canned goods, which had become a national institution. They were regular alchemists at Durham's. They advertised a mushroom ketchup, and the men who made it did not know what a mushroom looked like. They advertised potted chicken, and it was like the boarding-house soup of the comic papers through which a chicken had walked with rubbers on. Perhaps they had a secret process for making chickens chemically. Who knows? said Jurgis friend. The things that went into the mixture were tripe, and the fat of pork, and beef suet, and hearts of beef, and finally the waste ends of veal, when they had any. They put these up in several grades, and sold them at several prices, but the contents of the cans all came out of the same hopper. And then there was potted game, and potted grouse, potted ham, and deviled ham, deviled, as the men called it. Deviled ham was made out of the waste ends of smoked beef that were too small to be sliced by the machines, and also tripe, dyed with chemicals, so that it would not show white, and trimmings of hams and corned beef, and potatoes, skins and all, and finally the hard cartilaginous gullets of beef, after the tongues had been cut out. All this ingenious mixture was ground up and flavored with spices to make it taste like something. Anybody who could invent a new imitation had been sure of a fortune from old Durham, said Jurgis' informant but it was hard to think of anything new in a place where so many sharp wits had been at work for so long, where men welcomed tuberculosis in the cattle they were feeding because it made them fatten more quickly, and where they bought up all the old rancid butter left over in the grocery stores of a continent and oxidized it by a forced air process to take away the odor, rechurned it with skim milk, and sold it in bricks in the cities. Up to a year or two ago it had been the custom to kill horses in the yards, ostensibly for fertilizer, but after long agitation the newspapers had been able to make the public realize that the horses were being canned. Now it was against the law to kill horses in Packingtown, and the law was really complied with, for the present at any rate. Any day, however, one might see sharp-horned and shaggy-haired creatures running with the sheep, and yet what a job you would have to get the public to believe that a good part of what it buys for lamb and mutton is really goat's flesh. There was another interesting set of statistics that a person might have gathered in Packingtown. Those of the various afflictions of the workers. When Jurgis had first inspected the packing plants with Shedvilas, he had marveled while he listened to the tale of all the things that were made out of the carcasses of animals, and of all the lesser industries that were maintained there. Now he found that each one of these lesser industries was a separate little inferno, in its way as horrible as the killing beds, the source and fountain of them all. The workers in each of them 
had their own peculiar diseases, and the wandering visitor might be skeptical about all the swindles, but he could not be skeptical about these, for the worker bore the evidence of them about on his own person. Generally he had only to hold out his hand. There were the men in the pickle rooms, for instance, where old Antanas had gotten his death, scarce a one of these that had not some spot of horror on his person. Let a man so much as scrape his finger pushing a truck into the pickle-room, and he might have a sore that would put him out of the world. All the joints in his fingers might be eaten by the acid, one by one. Of the butchers and floorsmen, the beef-boners and trimmers, and all those who used knives, you could scarcely find a person who had the use of his thumb. Time and again the base of it had been slashed, till it was a mere lump of flesh against which the men pressed the knife to hold it. The hands of these men would be crisscrossed with cuts, until you could no longer pretend to count them or to trace them. They would have no nails, they had worn them off pulling hides, their knuckles were swollen so that their fingers spread out like a fan. There were men who worked in the cooking-rooms, in the midst of steam and sickening odors, by artificial light. In these rooms the germs of tuberculosis might live for two years, but the supply was renewed every hour. There were the beef-luggers, who carried two-hundred-pound quarters into the refrigerator cars, a fearful kind of work that began at four o'clock in the morning and that wore out the most powerful men in a few years. There were those who worked in the chilling rooms, and whose special disease was rheumatism. The time limit that a man could work in the chilling rooms was said to be five years. There were the wool-pluckers, whose hands went to pieces even sooner than the hands of the fickle men, for the pelts of the sheep had to be painted with acid to loosen the wool, and then the pluckers had to pull out this wool with their bare hands till the acid had eaten their fingers off. There were those who made the tins for the canned meat, and their hands too were a maze of cuts, and each cut represented a chance for blood poisoning. Some worked at the stamping machines, and it was very seldom that one could work along there at the pace that was set and not give out and forget himself and have a part of his hand chopped off. There were the hoisters, as they were called, whose task it was to press the lever which lifted the dead cattle off the floor. They ran along upon a rafter, peering down through the damp and the steam, and as old Durham's architects had not built the killing-room for the convenience of the hoisters, at every few feet they would have to stoop under a beam, say, four feet above the one they ran on which got them into the habit of stooping, so that in a few years they would be walking like chimpanzees. Worst of any, however, were the fertilizer men, and those who served in the cooking-rooms. These people could not be shown to a visitor, for the odor of a fertilizer man would scare any ordinary visitor at a hundred yards, and as for the other men, who worked in tank-rooms full of steam, and in some of which there were open vats near the level of the floor, their peculiar trouble was that they fell into the vats, and when they were fished out there was never enough of them left to be worth exhibiting. Sometimes they would be overlooked for days, till all but the bones of them had gone out to the world as Durham's 
pure leaf lard. End of chapter 9 Recording by Tom Weiss